Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is January 15th, 2015. 15-15. And guess what the episode is? 1500! Wow, I, I just realized that right now. I'm one of those people with that thing they call Asperger's, and uh, I like numeric patterns, and I, I usually recognize them in advance. Maybe from one of you out there that's been giving me a hassle because I took a vacation in the summer, <laughs> maybe that vacation made that number come up, and subconsciously I did it just to make me happy and annoy you. Yeah, I actually heard from somebody today that's annoyed with the fact that, at times, I, Jack Spierko, who, who works 12 hours a day, six to seven days a week, takes a vacation and they don't get a show. They were actually really, really angry about it. Hmm. I just thought you guys would find that amusing. It doesn't really bother me. Anyway, let's go ahead and uh, get into today's show. I have a cool show for you today. I decided to, like, let's go way back. Let's go, like, way back to, like, the first month, the first 30 episodes of Survival Podcast. Pick a subject and do a show today revisiting one of the most early subjects on the Survival Podcast. Back when, for some of you who are new listeners, uh, I was driving around. I did the show for almost two years in a car, and I had a little headset and a little MP3 recorder in my Jetta, and I drove about 55 miles each way to my office every day, and I did the show on that trip, and then two years into it, I went full-time. And uh, so this is like from the early days. The subject, you can even listen to the original show you want. This is episode 20 is the subject, but this is a completely new take on it, because let's face it, I've got almost seven years it'll be this June. Um, of, of, of time and experience and lifestyle alterations and interviewing people. But I think you'll find if you listen to today's show and go back and listen to the original subject, it's not that divergent because it's a core principle. So what is it? It's home versus homestead. What is a home and what is a homestead? And why should you want the second one and not necessarily the first one? Before I get into that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, KnifeKits.com. Hey, if you want to be a homesteader, you got to learn skills. A homesteader doesn't call a guy every time something goes wrong. Now, there's times when you do. Like if it can kill you or you don't have the time to do it, it needs to be done. That's when you call in somebody and you spend money in your local economy. We're even going to talk about that today. But day-to-day, -day, little things, you got to learn how to fix them yourself. We'll throw it away and buy a new one. Well, this is about developing skills, how to use tools, how to understand how things fit together. Hey, a great way you can do that is by building a simple knife kit. Get over to knifekits.com, check out what they have, and if you're not sure what to do, they have books and they have DVDs that walk you through the process. And if you're still not sure what you should buy based on your skill level, give them a call. Send them an email. There's real people there that really care, and they'll help you make the right decisions. And you'll turn into a lifelong customer, likely, if you enjoy building knives anyway. I know a lot of people have. They also have great Kydex kits and a lot of other really cool stuff. And if you're thinking, hey, man, I am a master bladesmith. I use exotic materials. They can help you out, too. They've got Damascus steel. They've got buffalo horn. They've got mammoth tusk. You name it, they've got it. Check them out today, knifekits.com. Next up, the easiest, the easiest sponsor that I've ever had to endorse Because all I have to say is I've been their customer for over 20 years now. I became a subscriber to Backwoods Home Magazine in 1994. Uh, not because they were a sponsor, because I wasn't doing this in 1994. The show started in 2008. And uh, they became a sponsor about three years ago now. 
And so this has been 21 years. Going to 2015, 21 years. I've been a customer of Backwoods Home Magazine. I think it goes without saying that you should too. If you want all of the uh, technical information, I believe, at better quality with a libertarian flair that you might find in something like Grist or Mother Earth, New Mother Earth News, check out Backwoods Home Magazine. That is the, the encyclopedia, honestly, of homesteading. We're talking about homesteading today. Uh, some of their anthologies and all, it might be something to look at. They have a thing called the whole shebang and what have you. But if you're a new subscriber to them, they have a special discount for you in the MSB. So check there first. You can also get a discount from KnifeKits.com. There's about 60 companies in the member support brigade uh, that do provide discounts to you if you're a member. So consider joining today. You can support the show at a whole whopping uh, 20 cents an episode is what it comes out to. 50 bucks a year. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, and prior service first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters. All of you do, guys do qualify for a discount to thank you for your service. Uh, email me before, not after you join. Put service discount TSPC in the subject line to make sure I see it, and I'll respond to you as soon as possible. If you don't get an answer from me in an email that would be something you'd expect an answer from for this or anything else in 48 hours, The spam monster ate your email, most likely, unless I'm on you know, one of those rare vacations that I actually have the audacity to take. Um, so email me again. It's not that I don't care. It's sometimes things get busy. Sometimes I miss something. Sometimes I go into the email box, and I've got to clean things out fast. I go into mass delete mode of anything that's not critical, just of a time thing. And sometimes, accidentally, I might delete an email I should have responded to. I respond to my own emails. If you email me at jacketthesurvivalpodcast.com, it goes in the same email box that every other email I ever get does. After six and a half years, I'm still doing that, folks. I'm still answering my own email. I do not have a personal assistant or something to do that. I try to pay attention to what's going on in the audience. I can't answer every email, can't put every suggestion on the air, can't Facebook and tweet everything. I just don't have the time, and not all of it fits to what we're doing at the moment. But I actually read, at least scan, every single email you send to understand what this audience is looking for and how they feel. And when I get a thank you, it is appreciated. So thank you guys for continuing to listen to the Survival Podcast and share it with others. I really appreciate that. Real quick, I want to let you know I did put out a couple videos today about an initiative called Gen Ford. If you're new to the show, you may not be familiar with it. It's been something I've been working on all through the fall. Uh, I want to let you guys know now, when I put out something like Gen Ford or Perma Ethos, I, I do let this community know about it. You guys are my friends, and the first people you tell when you start a new uh, venture is your friends and family and the people that you can count on are the people you think have an affinity with it. I work very hard not to make it, though, an infomercial. Uh, you know, like, don't turn TSP into an infomercial for Ethos or for Gen Ford in this case. But our Indiegogo campaign ends tomorrow night at midnight. I wanted to let you know a couple things. One, I put out two videos today on the, on the TSP blog, and you can help me with Gen Ford even if you don't want to financially contribute. They're basically two videos that ask questions, and I'd like you to post your answers to those questions. And instead of emailing to me, if you could, post them either at the video comments on YouTube or post them in the blog or post them on Facebook if you've seen them there. And our team is going to go through those and refine them, You know, even if they're very specific to you, refine them to more generic things to spur other members in their journaling for future generations and for their families today. So that's a way you can help. Easy peasy. Those two videos are out. There'll probably be one more video on uh, Gen Ford that will come out tomorrow uh, on the last day of our Indiegogo. Just kind of a wrap up and a thank you. And I probably will post that on the TSP blog. Hopefully it doesn't ruffle anybody's feathers. Um, it is something very important to me. Uh, I believe that a lot of the core values that we speak of on TSP are being eroded in our society today. And I want people to have the opportunity to put down 
either to text or video and be able to preserve that information for tomorrow. And I also want families to communicate better today. I actually heard somebody heard from somebody today that said I was doing this personally for myself, just for my daughter. And right in the middle of all this, a lot of things happened. And one thing including that happened was the person's wife decided they wanted a divorce and walked away. I want you to understand, Gen Ford's about not just 20 years from now. It's about right now. It's about right now. Ford begins with the now and moves into the future. And it's actually my hope to help prevent that type of thing with Gen Ford. I think if husbands better understood their wives and wives better understood their husbands and each better understood each other, themselves, that we'd have stronger families. And I think a lot of times you have something going on in your household where you don't understand why the other person acts a certain way, and they don't even understand, but when they start examining their childhood, when they start examining their, their big decisions in life, little things, and they start going through memories, they start discovering the memories they made together, and they become a stronger family. And anybody that doesn't think that's related to TSP, building stronger families, I have a piece of advice for you that's going to sound kind of curt. Don't listen. Seriously, don't listen, because you're not understanding anything I'm saying. I'm not saying you have to be part of Gen 4 to be part of TSP. Absolutely not, in no way, shape, or form. But what I'm saying is if you don't think strengthening the family and building stronger families and, and stronger communities are part of modern survivalism, if you think modern survivalism is about nothing but rugged individualism, going out on your own and being the lone wolf, I cannot help you. So don't waste your time here. Go find something else. Because that's what this show has been about since the first day. Taking all of the primitive skills, all the modern technology, assessing all the risks that are to us in life, and building a lifestyle that is resilient and allows us self-reliance and self-sufficiency, yes, but also is built on the concepts of individual liberty, personal sovereignty, strong communities, strong families. That's what this is about. And if you're a new listener and you're like, I don't want anything to do with that, don't waste either of our time. Because that's everything that we do. From how to put in solar, to how to raise a rabbit for meat, to how to build a business, to how to prepare for emergencies. If we don't have a family unit that's strong and cohesive in this country, no matter the makeup of that family unit, if that's not there, then we lose everything that this country is supposed to be about. The people in power in our nation have done a great job dismantling that which America is supposed to be and the potential that America could become because they see us as a place to harvest profit. And that's what it comes down to. You are a battery in the matrix, but instead of producing energy in the form of electricity for the matrix, you, ex you have mo money extracted from you, and that is a symbol for energy. That is what you have become. And they've done a great job at every level of dismantling it. What we have left, what we have left is a family. And there are families, including parts of mine, that because of this system have been destroyed and possibly never to be repaired again. But in a disaster, you don't worry about the building that's already crumbled. You start rebuilding it. That's why I'm doing Gen Ford. I just wanted everybody that listens to this show that might think there's a little too much overlap sometimes to understand that's why the synergy's there. And that idea, Gen Ford, goes back to 1999 in my head. And it is that 
spirit in which everything that's ever been done on TSP has been done. With that, before we get into homesteading, which I think fits beautifully into what we were just talking about, can we talk about the year 1500, guys, in the history segment? I'm just going to re read to you The Century That Was by Alex Shrug. There's also Canons that See, The Second Battle of Lepanto. But here's what Alex has to tell us about the 15th century. Let's review the 15th century, the century that was. We have transitioned from the Middle Ages into the Renaissance at the beginnings of the modern age. The great vowel shift moved English pronunciation higher up the throat. A German merchant league imposed quality control on fish packaging and grew into a naval fighting force. Constantinople fell to the Ottoman Turks and became Istanbul. Dracula lived and hopefully died. Tamerlane felt misunderstood and then dropped dead. Good. The Great Western Schism split the church. John Wycliffe translated the Bible into English, so it was banned. The Hussites fended off church forces, inventing modern warfare and the wooden tank. The church returned to an uneasy unity. The Chinese star fleet went on a grand tour. The Gutenberg printing pest made books affordable. And the modern patent system was established, but too late for Gutenberg. Joan of Arc pushed France to victory and was put to the flames for her trouble. The Portuguese found a route to India and around Africa and brought back slavery. The Blarney Stone was set in place. Volcanoes exploded. The Little Ice Age got colder, driving wolves into Paris. A shortage of silver and wool caused an economic depression called the Great Slump. The first Tudor king took the throne. Witches were burned, heretics died, the Spanish Inquisition was established, the Jews were expelled from Spain and Portugal, Christopher Columbus discovered a route to the Americas, but he thought he had reached the East Indies. Thus he called the people Indians and the word stuck. Other sticky words were calico, tangerine, mocha, amoka, sherry, lackey, and bedlam. You can't hold a candle to that. Do you know... I have to say that while I actually enjoyed history in school, I was one of those few kids that probably did, if this was the history we were teaching our children, I think history might be a little more popular. The good and the bad, but big, big, big important thing here, the truth. Or at least the truth as we can best define it from the information that's left. Not marketing to create citizens of conformity. That's what Alex Shrugged has brought to us with the history segment. The truth as it can best be interpreted. That's awesome. And I'd like to personally thank Alex for all his contributions so far. And I look forward to, well, another close to a thousand years with you until we catch up to the modern day. And then we're going to have to figure out what exactly do we do when we get up to like episode 2000 and I don't know, whatever it ends up being. And we're also past the year. It might be an interesting thing at that point, might it not? Anyway, with that, let us get into home versus homestead. You know, I, I let off part of the show here today when with talking about Gen Ford, telling you about my belief in the family unit. And I think that a big part of what's destroyed the family unit is the destruction of the homestead. That we've gone into a world that's based so much on a monetary control-based system that we've lost sight of the good, solid family roots that held families together. And in many instances, it's why if you look, on some levels, as you go down the income scale, you have families that tend to stay together that are closer to the poverty level than the affluent level. 
They live in smaller homes. They have to make do with what they can get and get by. Now, you go far enough down into the welfare roles and things like that, then you have a complete destruction of the family on the other end. But there does seem to be this bubble this in the middle, and it seems more prevalent in rural communities than in urban communities, where people that grew up tightly together in a small home and had to work for things tend to stick together more. I don't know. Maybe it's because it's the American way. How about we look at that? How about we ask ourselves something? Instead of looking at a homestead and initially defining it the way that we seem to today, which is a homestead is a, is a house or a farmhouse, and they've got some chickens and a garden and some trees, and you know they, they produce some of their own food, maybe some of their own energy, and uh, they, they live a little bit more like our ancestors. That's what a homestead is. Let's not think that limited. Let us take a journey through time today. Uh, unlike Alex, who has taken us to a journey of the, the 1400s leading up to the year 1500, um, let me take you back to the original homesteaders in America. And let me not paint too rosy of a picture for you that all these people were great people that were you know friendly with uh, the natives and didn't screw anybody over, but let's look at what they did do, what was hard about it, and what they did right, and why it worked, and why they did it in the first place. In America, this country was largely settled from east to west. And it basically was settled in the east, went a little bit west, and then we ended up with some uh, ability to start settling the west coast. And you have ships and things like that, and the railroad linked it. And there was still this hollow spot. Even when the railroads came, there were like communities along the railway, but there was all this land. And as this nation was growing, and the, the, the people that were running this nation understood that We were going to get to a point where it's going to be hard to feed ourselves unless we had more people growing food. And incentives were put in place to get people to go out and put in homesteads that would be small holding farms, 40 to 80 acres. Uh, in some situations, a very low cost to buy the land. In some situations, show up, put your stakes in the ground, claim it, file a deed, and it's yours. And many other ways that it was done, either easy, low cost, or free, if you would make the effort. People think, boy, wouldn't it be great if that time was here again and we could do that? Um, and it would be because today we have things like front-end loaders and tractors and chainsaws and excavators and bulldozers. And Man, if you gave me 40 acres and said, I want you to turn this into a farm, I could bring some heavy equipment in a day. And even with modern permaculture-style farming, I'm picking out the trees that are going to stay and what have you, and where I'm going to create wild spaces. I get two to three days of heavy equipment running around, and I have all, and I could bring in a sawmill, and I'd have a whole bunch of lumber to build a house with, and uh, yeah, but this was the 17 and 1800s. It didn't have any of that. Right? People always say the World War II generation was the greatest generation in America. When I really look at the homestead generation, I don't necessarily want to say they weren't, but I want to say you got you got to look at a contender being the homestead generation, the Western settlement generation. Let's talk about how this was actually done back then so we can understand the incredible opportunity we have today, even if we have to buy a place versus just put some stakes in the ground. So if you were someone living in a city let's say, like Richmond, Virginia, or Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, or somewhere like that, in Cleveland, Ohio, somewhere where there was industry, 
and about the time that all this homesteading was was going on and you wanted to go west. And you didn't want to go west for the gold rush. You wanted to go west to put down roots and set up a homestead and raise your family there. What did that mean? That usually meant that you had to live like crap for two to three years and work in a factory that sucked but did pay a living wage and stretch a living wage into two living wages, half of it to be saved to prepare for the journey because it wasn't about just buying the land. It was everything you needed to be able to do to survive long enough for the land to produce and half of it to actually live on. And if you were lucky and you were married and your wife could find a job, maybe putting off having kids, which was unconventional at the time, and her doing the same thing, and maybe living in a little shack you slapped together somewhere for two or three years on the outskirts of the city. And then when there was enough money saved up and the right opportunity came to go out and homestead, you didn't know where you were going. You just knew they opened up some land in X, and based on what you knew from the primitive communications of the time, that was a decent place to take a shot at it. And a lot of times what the new homesteader would do is look at the shack they were living in. And the most valuable thing that was used to build that shack wasn't wood. There's, and you ain't taking the wood for a house with you in a covered wagon or an uncovered wagon out west. Okay, Can't do it. But it's the nails. So you might pull the windows out and sell them to, for whatever you could get for them. Throw some uh, accelerant on your home. Set it on fire and wait for it to burn into the ground. After it burns to the ground, pick through the ashes and sack up the nails to take them with you. Because they were too valuable to leave in the shack. This is a real story that really happened more than once. And then you packed up everything you could with hopes that you were going to be able to make it and survive. You traveled hundreds to thousands of miles. And there are all these little towns and cities along the way to get to this place where you could set up your homestead. And when you got there, you figured out what piece of land was going to be yours. Sometimes you knew in advance... Sometimes you got there and had to work it out. And then you had this block of land, and that's it. Good luck. There's no electricity. There's no running water. Hopefully it's near a creek or a, there's some kind of natural pond or something, because otherwise you're kind of screwed. You have to figure out how to put a well in, and not one with, you know, turn it on and the water comes out. If it was wooded, have, have you ever tried to clear 100 square feet of wooded land? With, with hand tools? Let, I mean, a chainsaw, it starts to wear you out pretty quick. So then you had this piece of land, and hopefully you had, had been able to have some kids, because they were a workforce there with you. And you went out and you had to carve into that land something productive. There was no permaculture. No one understood that. It was annual production, and you better get it in quick, or you're going to starve by the next season. At the same time, you got to build a house, you got to build a barn. you got to figure out how livestock fit into this. you got to acquire some. Maybe you brought some with you. You brought some with you. You hope you're somewhere where there's enough grass to feed them until you get things up and operational. Living on a lot of milk and quite a bit of wild game to a degree, but a lot of the wild game was already gone by the hunters that came before you that wiped out the buffalo. There was maybe or maybe not the the danger of hostile Native Americans. Whether or not they should be hostile doesn't matter to you. You just don't want to die, and you don't want your kids to die. And that is what the homestead generation had to look for. That's what, that's what it was like. That's what it took. 
You can walk down to Wells Fargo, get a mortgage, close on a piece of property, and move into a ready-to-move-in house that needs a little fixing up, like we do today. That's what it was like. And that's why when you find a lot of these old homesteads, you'll find maybe a nice house on it, an old house, but a pretty nice house, three, four-bedroom, pretty big, nice porch, that type of thing. And then there'll be this little building off to the side that's been turned into something like a chicken coop or a storage shed or something like that, and it'll be you know, smaller than the average American bedroom. And when the people went there, maybe it was mom, dad, and two kids, or three kids. They had big families back then. And they all lived in that shed together, and that was the original homestead. They might have lived in there for a couple of years. Tiny house moving isn't new. But they weren't regressing to that little place. That was just, we got to have a place to stay warm, to stay dry, to keep our stuff, to be able to make dinner, to make sure that we're safe. We need something. So we're going we're gonna to put this together because it's fast. Because we can do this quick. And then we can get production up, and then we can build our main home. Do you understand how bad you have to want something to do it that way? And people would say today, well, Jack, um, I would do it that way if there was an opportunity to do it that way today. Well, if you want to buy land like we're talking about, it's not very expensive. It really isn't. If you're not worried about whether electricity gets there or there's a road going there, and you're willing to do everything on horseback with hand tools, you can find land like that. Good luck. Go go get it. You know? it's Is it... Is it maybe a little harder today than it was back then? Maybe, if you do it that way, maybe. Because you you can't just get the land or get it for a dollar an acre or something like that, which even though a dollar is worth a lot more, it was cheap. There are more people that would interfere with you today in some instances, but you could find land. I'm telling you, if you wanted to do this in, in rural Arkansas, in southern Arkansas, there are places where no one would even know you were there or care. I mean, I drove through the southern half of Arkansas, which I had never seen before, uh, a couple of years ago when my wife and I went on vacation, yeah, I took a vacation, we went to Florida, <laughs> and we drove back a different way than we drove out. It took an extra day, but we just wanted to see different things. And I drove through parts of Arkansas that you could tell were really actually very popular tourist uh, areas around a couple lakes at one time, but the economic collapse, I just caved them in. Towns had trees growing through buildings. It was, But there was land, ungodly amounts of land. Um, and that was just what you could see from state highways. So I know it's out there if you wanted it. We don't want it as much as they do because, well, the truth is we have options that are better. It's a better option to save up your money and buy a piece of land and use modern technology. It's a better option many times to find a place that's a little bit undervalued that already has electrical and water there somehow and fix up a home than a start from scratch. We don't want it as much because we have another option. That's something we need to be honest about. Because that way we don't feel bad about it. We just say, now look at the opportunity we got. We can do more than they did. Um, the next thing I want to talk to you about today before we go into the mechanics of some of this stuff is a mentality. Because you don't have to raise chickens and mini pigs or whatever and do aquaponics to be a modern homesteader. You really don't. It's more about the mental structure that you you put around your your dwelling your home and changing what it does so what i'd like to do for you is tell you how a, a, a cfo a chief financial advisor would analyze the average american home especially the mcmansions if the house was a company asset 
and the family was a company. And this is what almost every honest CFO would have to tell his employer, which would be the family, about their home. Your home has too low of a return to make it valid as a company asset. It costs entirely too much to maintain. It costs entirely too much for us to feed and insure. It costs us entirely too much in our debt-to-income ratio, and it is not a valid asset of this company. In fact, it's a liability, and we should get rid of it. That would be the honest assessment of a CFO of, of most American homes, probably yours. Maybe at this point, as I'm still working on mine, and it's we're only two years into it, maybe mine. We're on the path that I'm, I'm talking about going on for you today, and it's based on my pathway. You might have a different pathway. But your home doesn't make money for you. It costs you money. And the more debt it's leveraged against it, the appreciation only offsets the debt so much. Then there's a tax on something that you don't even really own. The tax goes up every time the government feels like raising it. There's a lot of restrictions on what you can and can't do with it. So this is not an asset. This is a liability, Mr. CEO. That's what your CFO would tell you. And if you turned to him and said, listen, I'm going to name the CFO Bill. I don't know why, but he's Bill. If I said, listen, Bill, I actually agree with you. And, and, and Bill says, well, then let's get rid of this thing. It doesn't belong in our company. I said, listen, the company cannot exist without this asset or another something that's very similar to it. The company actually ceases to exist, Bill, and your job goes away. If we don't make this work. So instead of telling me it doesn't work, I need you to use your financial genius to tell me how to make it work. He'd say, well, the bottom line always helps a company do anything that it wants to do. So first of all, the company needs to, to gain greater revenue. And one way we can do that is through being smarter about marketing our product, which might be your labor if you just are an employee, or it might be your business if you're a business person, but increasing the, the amount of money that comes in into the company as a whole. The next thing we need to do is we need to look at a reduction of expenses. If those two things can be balanced out, I still don't maybe think this thing's an asset, but it's a liability we, we can now carry with good conscience. And you say, say more things like that, Bill. You're starting to sound like you know what you're talking about now. Tell me more. So, okay, at the next level, that's the macro level of the company. Down at the micro level, we have to look at this, this, this thing, this, this item on our balance sheet, this house. And we have to say to ourselves, can we do the same thing with the asset? You say, okay, Bill, now you're losing me. Explain it. And Bill says, okay, can we make the asset itself produce income or offset expenses? And can we make the asset itself in some way a source of income? If we can do any of those three things or all of them, it becomes more viable. Bill, how, how might we do that? Well, the house is big. It could be as simple as we rent a room. The land is large. It could be as simple as if there's no restrictions, we put in some smaller dwellings and rent those out. And they become an extension of the core asset and are part of the real property. That would be another way. Oh, by the way, while we're renting them out, we depreciate them as a depreciating asset. So there, there's an opportunity to do that. Or we use the land to produce something that we sell, or we use the land to produce something for ourselves that we currently buy, and we produce it at a lower cost than we pay for it out of the open market. These are all ways we can do that. The next thing we need to do is figure out how to reduce the overall expense. So we can look at the energy footprint of this thing, like we would look at any building in a company. If you are a CEO of a company, and your company owns a building, one of your biggest bills that's a variable expense 
that you can influence every every month is your electricity bill. Trust me, as somebody that's you know been an officer in companies and owned companies that have been in that situation, it can be quite large, right? Commercial spaces are different than your house. Um, so you look at that. Well, in your home, you would look at that as well. So that's where you start evaluating things like alternative energy, but even more so energy efficiency. And in some states, it's as simple as, are you paying too much for your electricity? Because in my state, there's a whole lot of people paying five to six cents a kilowatt more than me just because I use a different company. Some states are not deregulated for energy, like Arkansas wasn't when we lived there, and you don't have that opportunity. But at least check into it. But things like improving insulation, putting in automation, things like that, reduce that energy expense. That would be one expense that could be reduced. The next is, can we put the company on better footing by paying off all of its debts outside of this biggest debt? And once the once those debts are settled, can we start working on reducing the debt load on this? In other words, can we pay off all of the consumer debt and then turn to the real property debt and eliminate it so that we have the, the property free and clear. That's another way we can improve things. That's another thing that moves your house more toward a homestead. That property tax expense is still going to be there. But if we can be smart about the way we structure things, we can understand one thing. That property tax expense is deducted from our income tax because we're not subject to double taxation. So at least that's there for us. And we just start thinking about this in a business-like manner. And this is what we should teach children in school. This is how to think about owning a home in the future. To structure your lifestyle around a home that does these things. The first thing that would happen is people would stop looking for homes in trendy areas and start looking for homes that were functional. And they would put a, a high priority on functionality both for the family and the extended family But for all of these other things, does this, this, this property offer a pathway to these other opportunities? And if it doesn't, let's put it on the no list. That's how we would selectively shop for homes. There's, there's many things like that that we could be teaching our children. But you know what we teach kids? We almost brainwash the average American to believe from grade school forward, at least by middle school, this message starts to go in. Home ownership is the gold standard. You should do anything and everything you can, young men and women, to do two things. Get a degree from college and own a home. And we won't go down the, the school lie today, because sometimes the degree is good, sometimes not so good. But let's just stick with the home lie. So what that tells a person is, hey, the interest rates went up two points. You really can't afford to buy now, but it might go higher, so buy anyway. Hey, you know, this house is about at the edge of your budget on the wrong side. We'd love to blame the banks for it, and the banks get some blame, but people borrowed money they knew they couldn't afford. Well, they said I could. That doesn't mean you, you, you didn't know you couldn't afford it. When you have people with a household income of $120,000 buying $500,000 homes, They can't afford the house, period. And it's only a matter of time before the reality catches up with the results. That's how we got into this mess, because America was sold on the concept of owning a home versus having a homestead. And it's sad, but it's true. So let's start going through this transformation. So I think number one is debt elimination. There's so many things that people want to do that are home, and they say, well, I want to do this, I want to do that, I want, but it costs money, and I don't have the money. And they're, they're very smart when they say, I don't want to take a home equity loan and go into more debt to do this, right? So I'm stuck. Well, usually, 
Not always. Because I've had people that, you know, like when I go through this with them, they're just at the edge, period. And they're not sitting on a bunch of other debts. But if you start looking at all the other, like let's do an analysis of your cash flow like, you know, Bill, our CFO, would do. And you look at all of the outflowing cash. There's a huge piece of that that's not a required expense. It's not electricity. It's not food, right? And it's not even a nice-to-have you know, expense. It's not cable, Internet. I, I mean, I'm not going to begrudge anybody those things. So you start looking at you know, credit card A, credit card B, car loan C, etc. Well, if we eliminated all that, started putting it into a bank account, you might have some money to do these other things you want to do. And you might be able to take this thing from uh, a, a, a stagnant liability to an operational cash-producing asset, right? Or at least an expense-reducing asset. doesn't have to completely pay for itself, but we got to have a roof over our head. There's going to be an expense with that anyway. Can we at least offset other expenses? And you might be able to get there if we did that. So debt elimination has to come first. And I, I did a lot on debt elimination early on in the show to the point where some people got upset with me and started calling me Dave Ramsey. I said, don't you dare call me Dave Ramsey. My investment advice is good. I mean that. He's got great debt elimination advice. The guy's investment advice is terrible. Um, so I got good investment advice. He has terrible investment advice and great money management and great debt elimination advice. But the reason that I did that is because it is the number one thing. It is the number one thing destroying families in America and destroying lives in America is debt. And sometimes I would scream at you and say, you got to do something about this. And I had some people, why are you yelling at me? I don't know. And I had people that emailed me and said, thank you so much. I needed somebody to tell me the damn truth enough times that it got through my thick-ass skull and I'm on the right path now. And I've received thousands of emails from people that are debt-free or on their way to debt freedom from the work we've done on TSP. And there ain't a single one of them that's ever said, you stupid jerk. Because of you, I don't have any debt. You ruined my life, you asshole. I have never gotten that email. I have never gotten that email once, not even as a joke yet. Somebody's going to send it to me today. Because <laughs> I know, every time I say something like that, somebody will do that. It makes me laugh, and I appreciate you for it. Um, but no, I've never had that. Or, you stupid jerk, I cut my debt load in half. Now I have to go back into some other debt. I wish I had more debt. I've never had that. So I know that it works. And I know the freedom that it brings, because we've been debt-free since 2006. And the day we, the only thing we owe money on is a house. We do lease a vehicle, but when you structure that in a business, it's not the same. It's not debt. It's an, ex, it's, it's an expense, but it's not a debt. It's going to be a cost of that vehicle anyway. The, the lease on that vehicle allows me to buy it eventually for less than I would have bought it cash for if I decide I want to buy it. So we won't get into that today. But, we, I mean, other than that, we don't have anything. We have the house payment, and that's it. And, you know, we look toward what makes sense to pay additional against the equity. And, you know, it's, it's, it's come to our conclusion that it's actually better that we improve the value of the property versus put the money into the property through the debt elimination. But having no other debt, it makes our lives so much easier. So much easier. At one time, we were paying about $700 a month in, in, in debt, you know, consumer level type debt. And we were not making a dent in it because it was all spread out. And we got on Dave Ramsey's plan, even though I didn't know who Dave Ramsey was at the time. We just came to the same conclusion. Let's pay the absolute minimum on everything and take all every extra cent we can find and put it on the smallest. And that smallest one went away like, bazam. 
And we said, okay, let's take the next smallest one. Right? That, Dave calls this debt snowballing. The next smallest one. And my wife said, but the interest rate over here is 19%. I'm like, uh-uh. Bob and the CFO in my head, we've got this covered. Don't you worry about it. And I remember the day we paid off our truck. It was our last debt. And we owed like $3,300 on it. We had plenty of money to be able to pay that off. And we got the bill, and I said, write a check and pay it off. And she goes, but we could have money. And I'm like, okay, hold on. Let me just look at this another way, honey. Let's, if, if we had just paid off the truck, and they sent us a letter in the mail that said, cash this $3,300 check and go back into making payments on it, and you can have the $3,300 for zero interest, because it was a zero interest loan on the truck, um, would you cash the check and start making payments back against it, or would you tear up the check and stay at no debt? She said, I, I would never sign that check. Tell me how this is any different. She made a couple woman sounds of being displeased. Said, oh, F it, which my wife doesn't say very often, broke out the checkbook and wrote the check to, to, to Dodge. <laughs> and we sent that check, and the, it was like the next day that we actually looked at everything we had and said, there's no more. And everything in my life has been better since that day. So that's why you got to start with it, because it works. Um, next, I want to talk about the case for a garden. I said you don't have to have a garden, but there's a big case for a garden. Gardens can be really small and really easy to take care of. You would be surprised if you built out of cheap-ass lumber. Don't worry about pressure treating and long-term viability, whatever. Just two Go out and get two by eights, the cheapest lumber they sell at Home Depot, and one box of screws. Okay? Get eight foot board lumber. So you need three pieces of board lumber for each bed. Cut one in half. That'll be four feet by four feet. Usually they're a little bit longer than eight feet, so trim off one end. So you have to make two cuts. Screw it together in a box. Put it somewhere and level it and fill it up with garden soil and come up with some way to make watering those two beds easy and plant peppers, tomatoes, lettuce, etc. in those two beds. It will blow you away how much food it will produce. You, you won't even understand how much food comes out of it. You'll be like, how does this work? You, in first year it might suck, but don't worry about it. By the second year you'll have this natural food producing machine and gravitate toward the things that you use most. If you make a lot of salads, grow the shit out of lettuce. Figure out all the seasonal different lettuces that will grow well. It's easy to cover. It's easy to protect. Easy to extend your season. Probably the best thing you can do is start with one or two of those beds if you don't have a garden yet. If you want to have a garden. Put it close to your house. Don't hide it in the back corner. Mulch everything around it. Put down cardboard to block weeds. Mulch the heck out of it. If you got dogs or something like that, put a little bit of fence around it. You put that all in for 150 bucks, 200 dollars, right? Maybe more if you have to buy the fill dirt in bags. But if you have a local resource that you can go to and buy a truckload of dirt, you can fill up those two beds and go on with your life. Four foot by eight, right? A, a, a pickup truck is six by four in a short bed and eight by four in a, in a long bed, and it's a hell of a lot deeper than the six to eight inches of fill you need. So one load of pickup truck will usually fill those two, and you're done. And you can square foot garden it, you can do whatever you want with it, but it'll produce food for you. And 30 cents worth of tomato seed will produce you $300 worth of tomatoes. I don't like tomatoes. Don't grow them. Grow something else. You could plant in all the perennials. That could be blackberries and blueberries in those two beds. Anything you want it to be. 
But a, a, a good little annual production garden that produces stuff for salad greens, peppers for frying with your food, stuff like that, is golden. Have you, have you paid attention to the price of produce lately? And it even pays off if you don't want to grow from seed and you have a shorter climate on you. Go down to the nursery every spring and buy plants. Please wait till after the frost is over so you don't have to worry about it unless you have good protection in place. But even buying plants for a buck a plant, it still pays off. Hugely. And I'm telling you something that's going to be hard for you to believe if you're going to be the person who says, I don't want a garden. First of all, there's two types of people that don't want gardens. There's the survivalist that says, well, if I have a garden, when the apocalypse comes, and bam, go away. Just get, get, get away. I'm not worried about somebody stealing my tomato in the apocalypse. I'd rather have the tomatoes canned long before the apocalypse if you're worried about the apocalypse. I'm just saying. And then there's a person who says, I don't want to do it. It's too much work. What have you. And I don't want to convince you to do something you don't want to do. But what I've found is, no matter who the person is, when they actually give it a shot, if they actually spend a season to learn the skills that go with it, get into that second season of production, they end up not only loving it, it becomes a form of therapy. There's something about human beings that when we touch the earth, we reconnect with what we really are. We are not meant to live in mobile metal coffins going to and fro every day, taking us from a place we can't afford to work a job that we hate to pay for the place we can't afford. We are not meant to live this way. And some of us, for the time being, in the situation we're in in life, have to accept that, well, even if I don't want to do this long term, this is what I have to do now. That's where I used to be. I used to be in that same boat with you. When I started the show, it's exactly what I was. I was in my little mobile metal coffin, my Jetta Diesel, and I turned it into an asset and started doing this show. Okay? But when I came home, when I still lived that life, I would come home tense and stressed the hell out, and I wanted to punch somebody in the face. And I would go to my wife, give her a quick kiss, grab a beer, and walk out the back door and water the garden. And she knew, just leave them alone. Remember, I'd been on the road for an hour, hour and a half, two hours, depending on traffic at this point, plus a full day's work behind me, plus producing the show. And I'd go out there and I'd water that garden whether I needed it or not. And I'd look around, I'd pull some weeds out, and I'd sit out there and I'd drink a beer and I'd watch the sun start to set. And I'd see what was working and what wasn't working, see where there was a pest, see where there wasn't a pest, take the dogs out with me, talk to the dogs, because you could tell the dogs, you know, today sucked. And the dog's like, oh, okay, that's all right. You're my master and I love you, right? So it's easy, right? The dog doesn't care. As long as you don't talk to the dog like he's a jerk, he doesn't care how you feel. He just wants to be a dog. You throw his toy for him or whatever. And you sit there and you think, you contemplate. I'd look at the water rippling in the pool, take care of the garden, and I'd walk back in and I'd be human again. That was worth more than the food, and the food was abundant. I'm just saying. That's my case to you for a garden. Perennial plantings, I think if you say, I don't want food on my property, I don't know why you listen to my show. I, I don't. I, I mean, if you, unless you live like in a zero-scape landscape and you're in the energy efficiency thing with that, I, okay, fine, whatever. But, I mean, if you're going to have, like, trees and bushes, why not have ones that grow food? I'm, I mean, it doesn't even make any sense. You, you drive through the suburbs in America. And you go down the road and you go, Bradford, Pear, Chinkapin, Oak, Maple, Live Oak. And it's all these trees. And it's usually like one lollipop tree in the middle of the little front patch of the yard with a little island of crap around it. And then you got, you know, 
box holly and, and privet or whatever in the front and a few uh, dahlias or something like that out there. And there's a lot of work that goes into keeping that looking the way it does and you're just going, well, that could be instead of a, uh, a Bradford pear, which is a fruitless pear, that could be a Bartlett pear. It would look like the same tree. There would just be food on it every year. And I think anybody from a, a third world country that, that goes hungry, that came to this country and saw that we planted all this useless shit, would wonder what the hell is wrong with us. And I think we should wonder what the hell's wrong with us too. I'm talking this stuff could be done mostly right in the middle of an HOA with blue hairs. It really could. It's a tree. You know, a cherry tree might be a problem or a mulberry because the birds poop in color, but you could make it work in the front yard even. Why wouldn't you do that? Why wouldn't you, instead of box holly, put goji berry bushes in there? Use your same hedge square chipper thing to keep. They'll stay that way. They don't care. And you have a nutraceutical, high-quality nutrition, a pharmacy sitting there. You know, the little clump of whatever ornamental crap Throw in a couple blackberries, primacanes, you don't have to prop them up. You know, every year prune them however you want them and go on with your life, but have a blackberry production season in your front yard. Plant a couple productive trees and bushes and shrubs and vines in the backyard. Landscape it like you would. Right in, and, and, and at that point, even the person in the HOA with the manicured lawn has moved toward, toward homesteading. See, it's not an absolute. It's not like you are or you aren't. Are you on the path toward? Have you at least moved toward? Have you moved away from the pure? See, what it comes down to is, is your home a consumer or a producer? The more your home consumes, the bigger it is as a liability. The more it produces, the more it is an asset. And it's your choice. Is it a producer or a consumer? Perennials are perennial. That means they come back every year. Right? So if you make that investment... It's an investment that literally grows faster than your 401k ever will on a dollar-for-dollar -dollar basis. Let me put it to you this way. Let's say you go out. You don't even use a good supplier like Bob Wells or Raintree or something like that. You just take your happy ass down to Home Depot. You go down to Home Depot in the spring, and they're selling fruit trees for 20 bucks. You buy six fruit trees, and because you don't know what you're doing, and you don't plant them right, and because you got lower-end stock and what have you, of the six, four live. I'm not even going to say what kind they are, just four random fruit trees. But four fruit trees live, and since you pay $20 a piece for six, you have $120 for them. Five years go by, you have four five-year-old fruit trees about... 12 feet tall with trunks bigger around than a coffee cup. And every year they produce, let's say, a, a bushel basket of fruit each. What do you think once, if you decide, okay, I just want to sell this house? Somebody comes to your home, looks in the backyard, sees these four beautiful trees, and then realizes that's a pear, that's a peach, and those two are apples. And does the math and looks at these mature trees at this point, what do you think the value in their head of those four trees are? How much less do you think they'd be willing to pay for the house if the next day they came back and they really loved those trees and somebody had come through with a chainsaw and cut them all to the ground? How much, how much more do you think that is than 120 bucks? For me, I would say it's about $1,000 a tree. I really would. A five-year-old productive fruit tree that's going to get more, year six and seven are going to be bang on, man. That's, that's when that thing's really coming into it. That tree's worth a thousand bucks a piece. 
That's four grand on 120 bucks in five years. How's your 401k doing, America? Why the hell do we not teach people this? Because we don't want a nation where people think for themselves, feed themselves, and feed their communities. Because that's a nation that's hard to govern, hard to control, and hard to divide. This is the best thing America can do for itself right now is to start feeding itself from its own backyards and its own front yards and its own neighborhoods. I, If I lived in a suburban place right now with the standard uh, yard, and I was building mine, any neighbor that said, well, that's neat, I'd say I'll give you four fruit trees if you let me plant them for you and take care of them the way I tell you to for two years. I'll give them to you. Like, that fast I would do that deal. Would you? If not, why not? If you had the money, just say, I don't know if you're broke, I understand. But if you had the money, if it wasn't a big deal for you to spend 80 bucks, you could do that once a month for one neighbor. Would you buy $80 worth of fruit trees and plant them for a neighbor once a month for the next two years? Would you do that if you could find the people that would let you do it? If you wouldn't, you should start thinking about it. Because if you did, the value of your home in that neighborhood would go up Way more. When you, when you, imagine you did this, right? For two years, you had 24 houses, uh, out of 50 in a neighborhood with at least four mature fruit trees in them. And now let's say 10 years has gone by. So that, you know, two years is time to, re- you got things really mature. They're eight to 10 years old all over. And, and somebody comes to look at your house and they, they happen to come at a time when some of the fruit's in and they see little old lady, uh, Sylvia and, 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 and Bob, the CFO who lives next door to you now exchanging a, a, a bag of uh, apples for a bag of uh, pears. I go, what do you guys do? Oh, we got fruit everywhere around here. There's the Most of it's in your backyard if you buy that house. The, the ROI, you see, we have to start thinking this way. We have to start thinking about what's the ROI on actions, not just money. And then small amounts of money coupled with small actions that yield big results. This is modern homesteading. That's what perennial planting is. The next thing is home-based businesses. You know, I run my business from home. I would say it's a home-based business, but there's a lot of different types of businesses you can do. We're building one right now, more for the purpose of demonstrating that it can be done to help others do it themselves than for our own need. You know, we're not going to make a fortune selling duck eggs, candles, and plants, but we'll make an income and we'll say, see, you could do this. We did this. Don't tell me you can't do it, because here it is. This, and I'll share everything that we're doing. Right now, I put together one to two videos a month for the MSB members, showing, telling you everything we're doing, what's working and what's not. I'm not hiding anything. The home-based business does what I said. It starts to turn the, the, the house into a producer. Think about it this way. Let's say I'll, I have hard numbers for you. So let's say I needed a place to do this show because for some reason I couldn't do it here. Do you know what the cost to me is? I can tell you exactly what the cost is. In, in rural Arkansas, the best reasonable, decent place we could find to operate this business from that provided us what we needed with Internet access, uh, climate control, so I wasn't sweating my brains out doing it or freezing doing it, and a, a quiet enough environment to do recording cost me $700 a month. When we moved here, when we moved here, I was able to eliminate that expense. Not mitigate, eliminate it. So when we purchased a home that cost us more than the home that we had in Arkansas, we were able to take that money and roll it into the the acquisition of our own equity in a home. 
So whether you're buying a new home and setting it up to do that, like we were at that point, or simply retrofitting the business back into the home, you start to do that. Oh, and by the way, there is this thing called a home office deduction. So we have two fairly large rooms, Dorothy and I do, set up as offices. And we're still able to deduct several thousand dollars a year in home office expense. These are the types of things that start to happen when you start to see. There's nothing about growing a plant there. You could run a small consulting business out of your home, and if you truly dedicate a room to the business, and it doesn't mean you don't sit in there and relax and watch your fish swim around in their tank or whatever or read a book. It just means when if an auditor ever did audit it and came there and looked at it, they'd go, this is, this is an office. You know, you're not renting it out to a teenager or something to sleep in. It's, it's, this is an office. As long as you do the square footage right and all, it's pretty bulletproof. So that's another way you can look at it. And like I said in the, in the kind of the beginning of the show, there's other ways to do that. You, you have, a, like, we have a big piece of land. It's three acres. We actually look at buying more. And I've, I've been looking at different housing options and thinking, because we have no restrictions here. So that's another leverage point, right? That's why we bought it. I could put in, Two, if I get this other three acres, I could put in four small houses, like one bedrooms. Uh, they would cost me about $25,000 a piece. It would be a $100,000 investment. And for another $25,000, I could put in kind of a facility for people that would make the small houses more functional. In other words, kind of like a community kitchen. I'm not saying I'm going to do this, but I could. For an investment of a hundred and a quarter, I could do this. I could rent those four, cover that hundred and a quarter easy plus a profit. And then I'd have this little community of people that are also an asset to what I'm doing. And there's probably people out there going, I, I'd rent one, Jack. I'd rent one. Well, maybe you would. Maybe you wouldn't. We, we don't know yet. I'm just saying that's, that's the type of thinking. Some people with really big houses that can deal with cohabitation well, you could be renting a room right now to three, three to $400 a month to somebody. And you could structure the agreement so that if it doesn't work out, you can get rid of them quick. We've decided that we don't really like having strangers in our home for more than a couple of weeks. We just don't. We've, we've done a few different things with it, and no matter how great people are, we just like our space to ourselves. It doesn't work for us, but for some people it works great. Paul Wheaton you know, has a dozen or more people in a small house at the same time and manages not to have knife fights, as he puts it. If you have a big shop building, you could create some kind of a business in there, but you could also set up workspace where maybe you become like a micro-worker space, a micro-maker space where people can come in and use your equipment for a fee and get some advice from you and turn that into a business. There's there's all types of cool things that can be done now. If you just started in your shop, whatever you were building, doing, making, manufacturing, creating, doing YouTube videos to invest in a camera and a microphone and good lighting, set up in one place so all you have to do is hit start record and stop record when you're done, five minutes worth of editing and threw it up on YouTube and started making YouTube ad revenue, um, you may not make a lot of money, but you just turn something into a taxable expense. You all the things you're doing become cost of sales. These are strategic ways to think that we could teach this to a 13-year-old in middle school in a way in which they would understand it and begin planning their life for it at 13. And by 25, own a home that produces income for them. But again, why don't we do it? We don't want that in America today. Independent, self-reliant families that stick together and build strong communities are the worst thing in the world for the oligarchy. Because then it would be, we have something shiny and new and it's plastic and you can borrow money to buy it. Meh, we don't care. We have a block party to get to. Take that shit out of here. Bye-bye now. 
That, that's, that's, we're a consumer-driven economy, and the people that make living off of that will do anything and everything to maintain it. They have no desire for it to change, and the only people that can change it are us. This is one of the ways we do that. Uh, we also have to look at, like, so what about the small house, tiny house movement? This is one good way to go. I see nothing wrong with somebody buying a piece of land, figuring out how to solve the energy water disposal problems, whether it's alternative or grid-based, building a small tiny home, either on-site on there or getting around the regulations if it's some kind of restriction thing by putting it on a trailer and putting it there and just saying, that's it, I'm going to live there, I'm going to put my chicken coop over here, and that I'm going to owe nobody jack diddly squat, the property has no improvements whatsoever, so the taxes are always going to be low, and the whole world can kiss my shiny ass. I have no problem with that. It's a great movement. Not for me, but I get it. I also think it would be strategic to take the compound approach with this. Like the original homesteader, let's put in the 180-foot tiny homestead, and let's put it in with a design for it to convert over time. And then let's build one that actually becomes like the eating house kitchen next. And then the space that was being used for a kitchenette in the, the main house, maybe it just kind of goes away. And then maybe we have a place in the main homestead that's really nice for, you know, a nursery for young children when they're babies and what have you. But we build another place over here. Maybe we rent that for a few years while the children are growing up. And eventually whoever we're renting it to has to go off and do their own thing, which most renters do eventually anyway. And maybe that becomes one of the kids' kind of little room sanctuary to themselves or where two brothers grow up together. And now you have this little compound approach, and it's much more functional. Or you just build a tiny house and then start working on a larger home. But imagine the power of this compound approach if all of the tiny homes were built on trailers. Imagine the freedom and liberty. Even if you had to, look, these are big structures. It's tough to drive. Sometimes they get to a point where you need a CDL. It's a pain in the ass. But even if you had to at some point say, you know what, this place isn't just working out anymore. Let's find a new place and hired five trucks to come get them and take them there and deliver them for you. It'll cost you less than moving the standard American four-bedroom McMansion with a moving service. Because all I got to do is back in, hook up, drive, park, level, drop, go away. If I ever built a tiny house like one of the ones on, on a trailer, like really big, nice ones, like some of them build on 30-foot, 32-foot trailers, and it needed to go from, let's say, Texas to Minneapolis, I'd hire someone to do it. I, I, I'd look at that right there and go, you know what, by the time I pay the gas and, and, and everything else and be going through the stress and all, let someone that's a professional at moving large things do this. That's why they have that job. I just pay to have it trucked up there. Be a thousand, fifteen hundred dollars probably, maybe two grand. So what? Just move my whole house and everything in it. Even if I had to do that and spend, you know, I had four of them and I had to spend five grand to get them because I'd probably get a deal if I had multiples moved. No problem. I just solved a million problems. I get there, my home's there, everything I own's there, everything's cool. I'm not saying I want to live that way, but I'm saying there is a, a value to that. This tiny house movement has some legs to it. But I think there's, a, there's some things holding it back. One is they need to start building them more of a production model. I watch people build these things that take a year to build a house. And then Extreme Makeover Home Edition builds a McMansion in seven days. And they start out with having to tear down the old house. 
That's painted furniture. I know they have a lot of people and a lot of resources, but still, you should be able to build a tiny house on a trailer in two to three weeks maximum, or it's not financially viable as a product. People have to piece them together themselves. In fact, it should be able to be doable in less than a week. With the, if you built them with higher quality, with the same mentality they build a mobile home, I mean, you should be able to knock them out, knock them out, knock them out, knock them out, with some level of customability in them. Uh, so that's one thing that holds them back. And the other thing is just it is hard to live in that type of space. So I think that they're better marketed as a tool, the modern original homestead. So remember how I talked about the fact that the homesteaders would go out and build a, basically a tiny house at the time. They didn't call them that. They just called them the, the homestead. And then they could live in there, and they had a hard-sided structure to get all the things going on, going on, and then build a house. I think that that's maybe a lot more how the tiny house works. So a single person or a young couple can use one, find the place they want to live and grow their family, put it there and live there while they build out something more practical for the average family. Um, I keep hearing when I listen to tiny house documentaries, the average American home used to be 1,250 square feet, and we had more kids, and now the average home is you know, uh, 2,700 square feet. Uh, yeah, okay. That's not a case for me to go live in 150, is it? And the people that want to do it, that's fine, but I, I'm going to say something that might twerk some people off or something here, but I just want to say this because I have to, and it's not 100%. But have you ever noticed two things that bug me about tiny house documentaries? One, I'd say at least eight out of ten of the people living in them seem weird. Not for living in them, just weirdos. Like, they just seem a little like something's off, and it seems... I know I'm going to really upset so many people now, but I always speak the truth, even if it's not well-received. The women in those seem a little more weird to me. I don't know why. They always seem to be like this moonbeam crap going on or something. Um, and then there's this... People that, you know, that makes perfect sense. It's usually the young people that seem the least weird, right? The young teenagers, I'm doing this, and I'm going to have this, and I'm going to have this my whole life, and I'm not going to live here my whole life, but I'll always have this. Those people seem much more rational. Maybe we should be teaching that. Maybe, maybe we could actually have kids going to high school, and part of Votech would be building your own tiny house, but we don't want that because we have independent people, right? See? Comes back in. But So I do think there's something there. I also think there is a place for the large home and compound approach. I mean, if I didn't have three acres, I couldn't do what I do now from a homesteading standpoint, but I couldn't host two to three TSP events a year that do make us some money. They're part of the production of, of economic production on this property, and they're part of spreading the message of what we do, and they bring a tremendous community together. It wouldn't work in a suburban lot. And it wouldn't work without a, an 1,800 square foot outbuilding out there that we can keep people warm and dry in when it's pouring rain and disgusting out, which it seems to always do when we have an event. So there's an asset in larger properties or larger homes with renting rooms or putting in additional structures you rent or creating other business opportunities. But you can't just buy it and say, well, that's good. You have to think about how you leverage it going in. We certainly did. So I, I advise that as well. Um, I also want to talk about like, When I did this topic originally, back in the day, so to speak, um, I talked about how the Internet had made things so much easier. Because everything you wanted to know how to do, uh, there was a YouTube video or a blog post on. 
And there was communities that were being built online where you could feel encouraged and ask questions and just, you know, just get basically motivated and realize you weren't alone. That, like when this original back to the land stuff started, uh, way back in the 60s and 70s, the kind of really, that was kind of the second time around, uh, for the back to the land movement. People felt isolated. You know, you didn't really know there were other people doing what you were doing. There might be a magazine article or two about it, but you couldn't stay attached to the fact that other people were living this way every day. And in 2008, you were able to see that. Oh, my God. Have you seen the last six and a half years? Everything I just said is more true now than it has ever been before. There's an amazing world out there being reclaimed by people that have said enough is enough. Enough is enough. I want meaning in my life. I want unity in my family. I want productivity from my home. I don't want to be a slave to my home, a slave to my job, a slave to my car, and a slave to corporate masters, and a slave to the oligarchy. I may not be able to live 100% free, but I can damn sure be a lot more free than I am right now, and screw it, I'm going to do it. If you don't like it, kiss my ass. That spirit is in every homesteader's blog. That Even if they choose not to express it that way, that's the real spirit there. Up yours. Remember from Independence Day and the words of my generation, up yours, right? But that is, there's a certain amount of up yours to the establishment in all of these YouTube channels, forums, blogs, Facebook communities, you name it. And that's great because it's not easy. It's hard. And seeing other people do it makes you realize you can do it too. So that there's, there's never been a better time. The technology, the opportunity... And the encouragement is higher than ever. The restrictions are higher. The taxes are higher. But the other things offset them if you're strategic. So it can be done if you want it done. And that community can help you do it. And please tie into other communities, not just mine. I am not the person who's like, it's all TSP or nothing for me. You know, God, there's so many great communities to be part of. Find what works best for you, including if this isn't what's best for you, I'm okay with that. I hope more people stay than go. But I really want people to have what's best for them. And I just do the best that I can, and I hope it works for you. And you can take everything I give you and do what you will with it. You can take part of what I give you and ignore some of it. Or you can decide, this guy's not for me. I'm going to go find my own way. But please find your way. Stop letting other people tell you what your way is. Because that's bullshit and it's slavery. And that's what home ownership has become in this country. Freaking slavery. It was supposed to be the most liberating thing about America. That you could own property that was actually yours. And we're almost back to a feudal system with taxes and restrictions today. But there's still a sliver of hope, a toehold of liberty. And like I said earlier this week, beachheads, beachheads, beachheads. Find where you can do it and go do it so fast and so hard that when they try to stop you, it's like, ugh, we really don't want to go there. Uh, the whole community is going to be pissed if we mess with that. Let's go mess with, oh, I don't want to mess with him. Oh, we'll go pick on this guy. And the two guys you decided not to mess with have so much power at this point, they turn it like a laser beam on your ass and shine a light on what you're doing there. And you go, ooh, we're making our town look really stupid now. How much is this going to cost us? Remember what I said from the art of war. Supreme excellence is not winning every battle by defeating your enemy. It's reducing his will to fight to the point where you defeat him before he even attacks you. And you never have to fight. I just paraphrased it, but that's the, that's the sentiment. That's what beachheads in this world do. Um, and that's how we can really make this work, is homesteads 
and building communities of homesteaders. Instead of just having this one oddball home in a community that is a homestead and everybody looks at it and goes, that's awesome, that's great, it's a good start. But things like I said, reaching out to your neighbors, I'll buy you four free trees. Let me plant them so it's done right. Let me tell you how to take care of them. I'll help you prune them. I can't grow as many varieties as I want. Let me put a couple in your backyard and we'll trade every year once they start producing. <laughs> If you think that's just about the trees... If you don't understand what that does to that community to start linking it together, and one person that went in and did that with 12 homes in a 50-home neighborhood, less than a 50% success rate, what does it do to that community? Let me tell you about a story about where it's been taken to the extreme with the urban farming guys. The urban farming guys are badasses, in my view. These are guys in, uh, I think it's Kansas City, that went in, to one of the worst neighborhoods in the whole place. A neighborhood so bad that no home improvement, charity, no politician, no initiative, no nothing would even touch it. Houses as cheap as a dollar. Houses stripped down to almost nothing. Unbelievable suffering, misery, and hopelessness. And they bought a house for a few bucks, and they rebuilt it while gunshots were going on and fires were going on in their streets. And they did deal with some diversity, but then they got another home. And then they rented one for interns. They put in aquaponic systems. They put in community gardens. They started doing amazing things. And the crime rate in this community has plummeted. And there's now people on their teams helping to rebuild homes that are the very people that stripped those houses of their copper wire and destroyed them. The very people that tore the neighborhood down have been inspired to the point where they are rebuilding it. I'm blown away when I look at the work they're doing. They're going to be on the show soon. I'll put a link to an initiative they're working on now. Do you know what they did? They went and they found this huge, huge building. Like this massive building. I think it's like something stupid, like 30,000 square feet or something. And they, they, they put a bid on it to buy it for, I think, either $15,000 or $30,000, something like a dollar a square foot or less or something like that. Something so stupid you'd never think, and it was accepted, and they bought this building. They're building a freaking makerspace in it now. They're expanding their mentorship program for the kids in the community. They're going to put in 3D printers, teach these kids how to use CNC, develop products for homesteaders all across America, and they're doing it in one of the worst, absolute worst neighborhoods that's ever existed in America today. And they're changing it by building a community of homesteads. Putting in, taking some houses that are not even restorable, bulldoze the house, take whatever you can get out of it, open up the yard, buy the one behind it, do the same thing, turn the whole damn thing into an urban farm. Employ people locally, grow food locally. They're shipping fish all over the country. They're tilapia uh, fingerlings for, for aquaponic systems. They're, they put in, they, their newest product is worm. Uh, worm castings from the hood, highly marketable, highly profitable. And they're doing it with people that have been written off by society. It takes special people to do that. I'm not suggesting that all of us should, but the point is it can be done. Once somebody does something, it's like breaking the four-minute mile. A lot more people are going to do it. So I'll put a link, and when you watch this, if you don't feel inspired, I suggest you check your soul and figure out where it went. Sometimes we forget we 
there's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Revolution is you.